from CNU 23 in Dallas, this is the Strong Towns Podcast. Here we go, Johnny. You know how long I've been wanting to have a podcast with you? I said if you're brave enough to interview me, I'm all for it. <laughs> Johnny Sanfilippo. Is that, did I say yeah. that right? Sanfilippo. Sanfilippo. And you tell me that's not a stage name. That's actually your real name because that's a cool name. Got it from my great-grandparents when they came over from Sicily. Awesome. Sicily. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. You have been a one of the very early, early Strong Towns followers, if you want to say that, yep. or someone who's been interested and shared our message and been real active in, in the stuff we've been doing. You have your own site, Granola Shotgun. Yeah. I want to start with that. Yeah, the name. So I, I love it. By the way, I, I, let me tell you what I think it means, and then you can tell me if I'm wrong. Granola... Is like I'm a you know I'm a I'm a little bit lefty like tree hugger hippie, like hippie, hippie. yep mm-hmm. and then the shotgun is but I'm like a I'm like a realist who's like you know from not, my cold dead hands yeah exactly yeah. like not going to be afraid to like embrace reality so am I on am I on to something yeah. is that yeah uh, I am uh, omnivorous and amoral I look for what works and what I noticed is that I was too conservative in some respects for my liberal friends and way too liberal for a lot of my conservative friends. So I thought, well, granola, shotgun. You know. is, how do you like being in that space? Oh, it's interesting because I learned from everybody. You know, um, there are all sorts of little parts of my life and the way I approach you know, urbanism that, that I draw from different sources. I learned a tremendous amount from Mormons. They're really industrious. They're pragmatic. They're yeah. cohesive. You can learn so much from Mormons. Uh, then again, there's lots of you know hippy dippy people that are doing all sorts of cool stuff. The fascinating thing to me is that independently, these two radically different elements of society very often come to the same conclusion and do the same stuff for completely different reasons, and that's what interests me. I, I was in Northern California, nor- north of even where you are at, um, and I was giving a talk to a group, and there was a there was a really strong uh, Tea Party constituency that that showed up, and they were. Very, very active community. I even signed up on one of their uh, sites just to kind of plug into what their conversation was ahead of time. And this is probably an audience of about 100 people. And, and I'd say a good 30, 40 of them were of this group. There was another really strong group there of what I would say were like anti-sprawl, environmental, very... Um, very granola, right? And they were very, very, very uh, passionate about that. I gave this talk and and found both of them in a sense like nodding their heads, like, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're we're totally in. We totally we hate those people over there. <laughs> I'm not. I have nothing in common with them. But I really like what's going on. I really like what you're saying. And to me, that's been kind of the fascinating thing about your writing and about you know the, the whole kind of strong towns group of people that are kind of coalescing around what we're doing is that the traditional, I think, nationalized left-right politics are kind of irrelevant to the conversation. It's more than irrelevant. It's dysfunctional, and it's failing both halves of the spectrum. Yeah. Like, nobody's really happy with what's going on right now. Right. Right. Let me, let me ask you this. Um, we had this really interesting conversation about uh, 
your tendency to, I'll say, um, I'm going to call it mine people or, or find interesting people and engage. Steal. steal. Right. Steal. It's okay. Steal. That's a good one. Theft. You, yeah. you were telling me a story about these young people living in San Francisco and how they were making a go of it. Would you mind retelling that story? Cause I, there, there are a lot of stories about a lot of young people. Let's talk about the, the three that were living in, in separate places oh, right. because they couldn't afford to live together. So uh, you have to understand that in, in my neighborhood in San Francisco, a one-bedroom apartment will rent for $3,800 a month. They are more expensive apartments, but that's kind of the, the base. And you have to really be lucky to find a, a vacancy because there just aren't any. Um, and so... I see waves of young people come to the city, and they're very excited. You know, they're they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. They've got a lot of talent and, and energy, and they they want to be in the city. And they realize they have to make compromises. And the the typical arrangement is that you rent a bedroom in somebody else's apartment. And when I say bedroom, that's a very generous term. Uh, the dining room is a bedroom. The living room is a bedroom. The the pantry is a bed. If you can sleep in the fetal position. That's a bedroom. <laughs> that's a bedroom. That's a bedroom. Right. And you wind up paying about $1,000 for whatever that is. That's your share <laughs> of the space. Right. Um, and often there'll be a couple. Now, you were mentioning this one particular group of three people. There was a boyfriend and a girlfriend, and they would love to live together. They are already spending $1,000 each, but they can't actually live in the same place because of the various configurations. And then they have a business partner. Uh, a guy who is also living someplace else. And so between them, they're already spending $3,000 a month on rent. They right. would like that to be one place. And you'd think that's a generous budget. Right, that but makes it, sense. Yeah. It doesn't work. It in can't place. happen. It, yeah, well, you have to be lucky. You have to wait. You know, you have to massage things. And, right. You know. So they've decided... Plus, that's just got to be... I mean, I, 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 I know young people, obviously... I mean, I, you're talking to a guy here who married his junior high girlfriend. So I understand what attachment is, but I also see a lot of people who, if, I, if, if I'm waiting on a long list to get into a place in San Francisco, and then the relationship doesn't work out, uh, you know, getting out of that situation is a... And an apartment is much more valuable in the long term than your, your failed boyfriend or girlfriend, <laughs> right? So right. You, you hold on to that rented space, yeah. and, and, you know, and then you wind up often living in a place that you don't necessarily want to be with the person you're with anymore, but right. neither one of you is going to leave. Because so. you can't yeah. afford the, the alternative. Okay, keep right. going. I'm sorry. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, they... Just, they're they're very industrious and they save and they work and they're they're very focused. You know that's the uh, the characteristic I notice most in you know, today's younger people. They're yeah. they're very focused and they're very organized and uh, I, I respect that a lot. Um, but they've decided that there's just no way that they're ever going to be able to uh, buy a home and, and sort of like the roommate thing is really romantic and adventurous and exciting for the first year. In the second year, it gets old. In the third year, it's really old. And then they start to think, okay, where are we going to take this? You know, where do we want to be 10 years from now? And they've decided that they're going to have to move to another city. This gets back to the heart of what I constantly explore is these are your options. This is your budget. This is what you want. How do you make those things fit? And increasingly, their numbers are never going to add up in San Francisco. It's not going to happen. They don't want to compromise and live in a suburb. Right, because the you know the ranch on a cul-de-sac with strip malls doesn't have any appeal to them. By the way, in Northern California, that's not cheap either. Sure, sure, yeah. right. So yeah, it's not like that's a panacea financially. It doesn't right. fix things. Yeah. yeah, because by the time you get to a three-bedroom ranch that you can afford on the money that these kids are making, 
you're in Nevada. I mean, it's just right, <laughs> right. And and moving to Nevada, you know, could be an option if that's what you're looking for. But sure. these kids are looking for something different. So uh, I follow these jet waves of these kids over the last twenty years. Like they they come to the city, they they stick it out for three years, and then they're gone. Right. Where do they go? Uh, a lot of people just assume that they would move to the suburbs and start families when they quote grow up. You know, right, out, right. Outlive this silly urbanist tendency. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work that way. What they're I'll start back with what was happening uh, when I was their age in the 80s. So my generation, Generation X, was really looking for the ranch on the cul-de-sac. That was what most people in my generation wanted. Right. So, you know, you'd graduate from high school in 1985, and you'd, you'd look for the suburban dream. And if you were living in Los Angeles, you couldn't really, even in Los Angeles in the 80s, it was already starting to get prohibitive to buy that suburban dream. So you would look for the equivalent neighborhood in Scottsdale, Flagstaff, Albuquerque, Santa Fe. Sure. You would find the house in the neighborhood that you wanted, and it would be less expensive. Your car insurance would go down. Your property taxes would go down. You'd have less traffic, less, less of the things that bothered you about Los Angeles, but you'd right. get the life that you wanted. Young people are doing exactly the same thing today, but they're doing it with urbanism. You can't afford Boston. You can't afford Toronto. You can't afford San Francisco. The suburbs have no appeal. So they're looking for second and third tier cities that have the same basic qualities. So if you're in Brooklyn, you can go to Buffalo. If right. you're in San Francisco or Portland, you know, it's not like Vancouver's cheap, right? You're, you're looking for the next kind of place that gives you what you want at a price you can afford. And I've noticed that companies and employers are moving along with them. Right. They're seeking talent. So it's it's Pittsburgh. It's Cincinnati. It's it's all these cities. Well, we had a chat about Cincinnati. Yeah, because I've been. I mean, I've been in Cincinnati a couple of times. Very fascinating city. Very interesting. A lot of great things going on in Cincinnati, but not one that I would put in uh, a, a bucket list of places I'm dying to to move to. Yet, you know, one of your experiences was was specifically with Cincinnati. Yeah. No, people people don't realize how fabulous Cincinnati really is. I've heard this. It's a very very great neighborhoods, walkable places. A lot of what you'd experience in a place like uh, San Francisco, but at a much cheaper budget, right? Radically, radically less expensive. Yeah. Now, I know people who said, oh, I've been to Cincinnati, and it's a pit. And I said, well, where were you? And they said, well, I was at the airport Marriott, and, you know, <laughs> and then I went to this office park in Blue Ash, you know, which is a suburb. And, and I said, oh, yeah, that's, that's hellish. I, would, I could never possibly do any of that. Yeah, except right. oh, have you been to Over the Rhine? Have you been to Northside? Have you been to all these other great neighborhoods? And uh, they're like, they don't know they exist. If you ask people who were born and raised in the suburbs just outside of Cincinnati, they probably don't have any sense of what the stuff is either. Right. That's fine. Okay. Let's talk about these. Let's go back to these three individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I want you to describe a little bit because you romanticize the millennials in a, in a way that I, I, I think people won't get until they start to hear your examples, mm -hmm. because the millennial generation, I mean, you, you can, there's a, there's a lot that's been said. They're basically the echo of the boomers. And so where they go, the trends all go because of just the size the of weight. this generation. Exactly. It's the mass of people. You and I and Gen X. We have no say in we anything. Have no, I mean, we're, we're just, lost. we're along for the ride, right? Mm -hmm. But these guys, when they decide to move, the, the earth moves with them in a sense. Uh, you talk about the experience of these three, specifically what they did to make a living in San Francisco, because I, I, I do think that this captures the great potential of this very interesting generation of people. 
So they can uh, sort of the shorthand is they're hipsters, and hipsters has also a lot of you know, it's, it's a pejorative for a right. lot of people. Um, they are liberal arts majors. Yeah. They fashion themselves as musicians and artists. And, and all of the things that you can immediately say, oh, we're just going to dismiss them because they are obviously of no account. Right. Uh, not serious at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, they'll grow up. They'll get real jobs. You know, that kind of thing. And uh, I, I am just incredibly impressed. So these three individuals, uh, they got together and they formed a company. They said, we don't want to work in cubicles. It's not how we want to spend our lives. You know, 40 years and a gold watch and a 401k. So they created a, a group where they use their, their talent and their skills to uh, provide a tourist, to tourists. So people come to San Francisco and they want to know what the neighborhoods are like. They want a, a more personal experience. They're just sort of wandering around aimlessly around the city. And their, um, uh, their business model is you, you find them on the Internet. Uh, you show up at a designated place at a specific time. And they give you a great tour. And there's a Chinatown tour, and there's a mission tour, and there's a Castro tour, and all that kind of thing. And uh, it's free. You pay what you think the tour is worth at the end of the tour. Yeah. So it's, it's a totally voluntary, you know, if you think it's worth 12 cents, that's fine. If you want to give us 60 bucks, we'd love it. You know. And in the last two years, in addition to hiring people that they pay a living wage, <laughs> right. on that model, Yeah. They have squirreled away, after they paid these crazy rents and all their other living expenses, they've squirreled away $30,000 in cash yeah. from this business. Yeah, that's right? incredible. That's not um, pie in the sky. You know, th these are serious. These that's, are grown-ups. That's granola shotgun for that's you right there. <laughs> and they have little ukuleles and funny hats, and, you know, and, yeah. they, and they do very, very well. Yeah. Uh, and they actually care about the people that they hire, um, who are also basically you know, the musician artist types who, right. you know, you're not going to get hired at Bank of America with those skill sets, and they've done well. Now, I think about a place like Cincinnati or a place like Cleveland or, or, or even Pittsburgh, uh, in a sense. You take people with that uh, gumption, that entrepreneurial zeal, that, that ability to essentially manufacture something out of nothing and drop them into a place like that. What, what, I mean, what do you think happens to this country when you do things like that? I, I am, uh, like I said, sort of amoral and omnivorous. Whatever works, that's, I'll, I'll look into it. You know, yeah. uh, we're seeing a an inversion. We're seeing a lot of talent and energy and money move into places where that had been abandoned for a long, long time. And but the opposite is also true. We're seeing a vacuum formed in a lot of failing cul-de-sac strip mall suburbs, including the one that I, I grew up in. I, I grew up partly in Los Angeles and partly in New Jersey, and uh, there are the neighborhood that I grew up in in New Jersey, which was you know modest 1960s tract homes and similar vintage gas stations and drive-through fast food places. It's it's failing. Uh, boarded up windows, uh, they kept expanding the road, and they expanded the road, and they expanded the road, and everything along it just kept dying every time they made the road bigger and wider and faster, and they put the concrete barrier down the center. Um, you know, there was a lovely downtown uh, that was built by the British, you know, in colonial days, and right. it's gone. just gone. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so what we're seeing is uh, a, a migration away from some places toward other places, and uh, I think that some places have the potential to be reinvigorated and uh, prosperous and other places are simply going to die. Right now at, at CNU, th there's a collection of people, and I, I love them. They're very nice people. Uh, I think their heart's in the right place. But, but their approach is really along the lines of how do we build a better suburb? How do we make better greenfield development? How do we change City Hall 
to, to try to get better outcomes uh, in the places that we're building. There's another kind of strain of thought, and I think this is more your, along your lines of why are, we, why are we fighting this machine that's set up to build this really crappy stuff? Why, why don't we just let it go off the cliff you know, that it's headed off of? And you know, why don't we just take these places that are already there that are good and, and bring them back? Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on right now in Baltimore, and Baltimore is one of these cities that when you drive through uh, or when you, you know, you walk through neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood, just gorgeous places, great bones, boarded up and in really dilapidated places. What's the argument for investing in Baltimore as opposed to, uh, you know, the suburbs of, of San Francisco? I've seen a lot of the good-intentioned uh, suburban retrofits in the Bay Area, and everywhere I go. I, I seek it. I look at it. I want to see what it's like. Yeah. And it's always mediocre. And it's not because the people who built it wanted mediocrity. It's because by the time you arm-wrestled the Department of Transportation, uh, the fire chief, uh, you know, the, the zoning boards, you wound up with um, something that was a, a, a serious compromise. And it's just very, very... It just you know, it, if you're going to have, it was uh, a watered down version of good, right? No, it it was it was um, it, it has a lot to do with proportions. If you have a fantastic walkable neighborhood and you have one crappy building that's mostly surface parking lot and it's an old su supermarket or something, the neighborhood can carry it. If what you have is a lot of really low grade suburbia and you have one block of really good urbanism, what's the point? Right. You're right. a raft floating on yeah. a sea of, of mediocrity, right? Yeah. And, and uh, by the time you've got the, the enough structured parking to make your 400 unit apartment complex walkable, uh, it doesn't work. It's over yeah. at that point. Right. right. Now, not, now, it's probably a lot better than uh, a, a 50 year old used car lot. Okay. Sure. In terms of tax revenue, and, and and maybe if you stitch enough of these together over a couple of decades, you might eventually mature into something more walkable. But every time I look at these these buildings, they tend to have blank cement walls on the sidewalk. They have a very suburban typology. It's it's landscape berms and uh, you know the nature band aids. Yep. And then and then the, the the city council thinks that they need transport. So they get what I call the transportation band-aid, which is the little bus shaped like a trolley with wood paneling and brass rails. Right, to make it okay. To get you to the mall. Yeah, right, right. right. So personally, uh, I don't have the temperament to fight City Hall. Right. I just don't want to do it. I don't have the skills for it. I'm not charming. You know? And on the other hand, uh, you know, I just put an offer on a property in, in Cincinnati, and it's uh, a $17,000 building. Yeah. Right now, if I fail completely, right, I've lost seventeen thousand. You can't buy a Hyundai for seventeen thousand. Right, right, right. If like everything goes bad right. and the property becomes like worth negative, uh, you're okay. out seventeen. Grand. Now, now yeah. seventeen thousand dollars is not a tiny amount of money, but it's right. relative to what I think the long term potential is going to be. Um, and I've done this before. I mean, I did this in, uh, when I was young and impoverished. When I was uh, first moving to San Francisco. San Francisco was a very different place. I mean, my neighborhood was full of prostitutes and drug dealers, and the buildings hadn't seen paint since the Eisenhower administration, and nobody thought it was a good idea to live there. Right. Um, but I got a group of friends together, and we bought a small five-unit apartment building, and we fixed it up, and over 20-some years, it, it matured into the mission. Sure. But it didn't start. It was, it was a different place back then. Well, I've, I've asked people the question recently, just because I, 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 I want to hear people's answer. 
I think I know what your answer will be, but I'll ask the same question. If I had a uh, million dollars to invest in a city, would you go buy one condo unit in Austin or San Francisco? Or would you go buy uh, 10 or 20, 50,000 to $100,000 units in a walkable neighborhood in Cincinnati? Obviously, I've already you've already my, I've done, already that, done right. that, yeah, and I've done it multiple times in multiple places. Um, and uh, I, I am I'm not uh, an advocate of spending eight hundred thousand dollars on a one bedroom apartment anywhere. Right. This is a bubble. You know, there are all sorts of forces that are pushing prices in that direction for people who can afford it. But it's uh, it's a bad move to spend that much money on anything at the top of a market. You, you you buy at the bottom of a market when when everyone says this is a great investment run. When everyone says, oh, my God, John, what are, right, you, what are you doing? What? Right. Really? That's like, yeah, over here, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do, I, I'm, I'm out on the road a lot, and I have to talk to different audiences of widely different demographics. And, and one of the things that I found wrong with what I do is that there are times when I think I've pulled punches or uh, held back because I don't want people to think I'm crazy. I don't want people to think, because I'll go tell people, look, you know, you, Detroit is destiny. Your city is, is really in for a radical change here. And you're going to have to do something vastly different. In fact, 80% of your city is going to con be contracted uh, over the next generation. And when, even when I give them the context of the curbside chat, that just seems crazy to even come out of my lips, right? It's, it's hard to fathom what that is. It's reassuring to talk to you. <laughs> oh, you're in trouble if you think I'm, it's I'm, reassuring. I'm a, a sane voice of wisdom. Yeah. Well, no, but it's, it's uh, one of the things that I've always found comforting about you is that when, when, I, when I think something is like I, I put out, like I, I, I delve in and I come up with a statistic or I come up with something that I know is right but just seems way outside of the norm, I come back to you and you have this like reassuring pat on the back like, no, Chuck – you are seeing this right. Uh, it's just the world's a little, you know, not quite there yet. You, you kind of share my, uh, what some people have called a, apocalyptic streak, but I, I wouldn't go <laughs> that far. Um, you also think that some hard times are ahead for some places in this country, right? Well, there have always been hard times for some places. You know, there have always been uh, neighborhoods that, um, that started out pretty good yeah. and that devolved. You know, there are all these mansions uh, in cities all over uh, North America that were built by very wealthy people that now have pigeons living in them. Right. And somehow that happened over time. And, and no one at the time would have believed that possible. Yeah. So, right. you know, for example, you know, in San Francisco, I, I know some people who are in their 70s, and they bought their places in the 1960s, and they said, this place had been carved up into 14 studio apartments, and it was a heroin den when I bought it, and I had to clean it up, and, and, uh, and it was built by an extraordinarily wealthy, you know, copper baron or something, who, who never would have imagined that happening to his home. Right. And I think there are a lot of lovely North Dallas uh, gated communities that are going to wither and die. I, I can't say specifically which neighborhoods, but there's all sorts of reasons why this system is not long for this world. Right, just the inertia of it. There'll be, there'll, there'll be some places that today you would not pick as losers that would be catastrophically so. Right. And yeah. I don't think that the agents of change are necessarily going to be the ones that people predict. Um, there are tremendous hidden forces in society like insurance companies right. who will start to draw red lines on the map saying, you know, after the seventh big storm, 
we're not re- we're not insuring this anymore. And by the way, if you don't have insurance, you can't get a mortgage, you can't right. refinance. Right. That will kill a neighborhood. That will kill an entire city. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's other stuff where you know people just move on. They migrate. You know, uh, one of the reasons that the Northeast got hammered so badly is that people just decided they liked sunshine and they moved to Arizona and Florida. Right. Well, people when they run out of water. In Tempe, yeah, they, they decide, move. right, Oregon, I, I you know. don't like dehydration. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, and it doesn't have to be the apocalypse that makes people change. It's yeah. an incremental shift in the cost of basic things. Right. And a perception, a perception that things are moving in the wrong direction. And there's a tipping point. Uh, you know, I know people who live in certain places, and they notice that just a handful of really smart, wealthy people suddenly just all moved at the same time. And then there was a lower tier of people a couple of years later who were maybe a little bit more flexible. Their kids were done with school. They were just about to retire. And they all kind of moved. And then and over a period of five or ten years, they just looked at their neighbor, their little subdivision, and realized yeah. all those houses are occupied by different people now. Right. And then there's this panic sets in. Right. That's what's going to – the herd will just rush. Let me ask you about the – because I agree with you, and I see the same thing happening. And, and – People want me to predict the out- no it's going to unfold in ways we can't really understand today. I want to ask you about the upside and the downside of this because I see both in, in in huge degrees. Let's talk about the downside first. The downside to me seems to be Ferguson right like like when all when, when that reaction that you talk about unfolds and the affluent people start to see things not quite work right. This place over here seems a little bit better. I've got the means I'm going to move. And as you get lower and lower into the the strata of affluence and your ability to extricate yourself and move somewhere else, what are you left with? You're left with the most impoverished people. And largely it's going to be in places with very little transportation, you know, very widely dispersed development patterns. So how do you get food? How do you get to a job? Is this the down? I mean, is that the downside? Is that the big challenge that we face? So I was in Zurich visiting a friend some time ago, and Zurich is this amazingly clean, yeah. organized, prosperous yeah. Swiss Swiss city, Swiss city right? right? And I did said, you like it? Uh, Zurich, yeah, Zurich can be. A lot I of fun. loved. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I, I have to say, if if you made me pick between Germany and Switzerland. Mm-hmm. I would pick Switzerland. I loved Switzerland. Zurich, not Geneva, not Lucerne. Zurich is a much more interesting, from my taste, but okay. everybody has their own sweet spot. See, I loved Lucerne. I, I thought it was incredible. But right. go ahead. Uh, so anyway, I, I asked my Swiss friend, I said, so what's the secret? Like, what is this Swiss magic that you have that keeps your city so prosperous? Because even uh, very poor immigrants who do menial work, they seem healthy, they seem well-adjusted, they're, they're not living in terrible slums. Uh, and I said, what's the secret? And he said, you know, the secret to having a clean house is you clean it. Yeah. You know? yeah. It costs money. It takes political will. But you can live in a society where the cleaning ladies are living at a decent standard, and especially their kids are getting an education, right. and you're moving up. Or you live in a place where there are extremes of rich and poor, and you pay for that anyway. You pay for it in prisons, which are much more expensive than schools, right. and you pay for it in people being afraid to be out on the street at night. As Americans, we really don't like paying for anything if it doesn't directly affect 
us. We would rather move to a new jurisdiction where the taxes are lower and the problems are somebody else's responsibility. Right. And I am not in any way suggesting that we need to change the world. I don't, like I said, I don't have the temperament to fight City Hall. I'm acknowledging how we do things here and I'm saying, you know, pick your poison and move forward. Right. And, and that's, there's a, there's a, that's kind of what I like about you. It's the, ref, it's the sense that this is human nature and, you know, he, here's kind of the way things line up. And I, I just struggle with, I look at a place like Ferguson and I look at a place like Detroit and I, I kind of intuitively understand that, you know, over the last, well, what, what was it? Joe Cartwright said, over the last decade, we've gone from a thousand census tracts in persistent poverty to 3,300. Almost all of them in the suburbs, by the way. Almost all of them in suburbs, yep. And and you look at that trajectory and, you know, where are we going to be a decade from now, two decades from now? It, it seems to me like the shakeout that America is setting up to be is, it is one of, I don't want to say income inequality, as much as it's going to be opportunity equality, uh, uh, asset equality. You may have people own homes that are worth nothing out in the middle of nowhere where they, they have no opportunity. And then people who, you know, uh, are able to move to places that are functioning. And there's going to be a huge geographic disparity between the two. And, and, and I don't know how that, I don't know how that plays out in a way that is salvageable in a sense. I have two responses. Yeah. The first is that as good urbanism becomes more and more expensive, as it's desirable, uh, as money moves toward these places and come back to life, they're going to become very sterile. Like my neighborhood in San Francisco is already, it's, it's a great neighborhood. It's wonderful. You're getting, the orderly is starting to creep it's in. It's the $17 donut. Yeah. Right? And yeah. you kind of get, and it's, they don't call it a donut. It's, it's much, much nicer than a donut, but it's a $17 donut. Uh, you get to that point and you, ex- you ex- exterminate the, the class of people that make a place interesting because they don't necessarily make a lot of money. So they have to live someplace else. Yeah. And when I look 20 years out, I think that the, the creative class, however you want to describe that, right. they're going to colonize a place that has two qualities. It has to be cheap and it has to be unregulated. Yeah. And they're going to colonize the crappy abandoned suburbs. The big box stores are going to be the live work lofts, not the lawyer kind. Right. Not not where you know the million dollar the, 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 the actual, artist kind. Yeah, the place where you where know. There's for, a cloth blanket between the two bays. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so that that's how some failed suburbs are going to be saved because they are going to be occupied. Now that's the minority, a very small group, and they're probably going to be geographically specific. Right. They have to be close enough to money, but just far enough away. You know. Um, the other possibility uh, is that, uh, where was I going with the second thought? Oh yeah, so the causes of this rift between rich and poor. Uh, conservatives love to talk about the liberal elite in, right. in places like San Francisco and New York. Yeah. And it's, you know, their cappuccinos and all this nonsense. And uh, liberals like to talk about like the evils of corporate America. Well, what's caused this rift is we decided as a country in the late 70s and in the early early 80s with the Reagan revolution yep. that we didn't want to be shackled by taxes. We didn't want to be shackled by regulations. We wanted to be free and able to go out into the world and, and create new things and innovate and rise without you know, labor unions gumming up the works and all of that. And it, it actually worked. It worked really well. We yeah. are a much more uh, dynamic and innovative economy now. The problem is that, quote, the wrong people were the ones who got rich. Yeah. 
it, it wasn't the middle-aged white guy yeah. who suddenly was liberated from taxes and labor unions. No, that guy is working in a cubicle now and working yeah. for the man. It's right. a 27-year-old Indian woman right. who's gotten rich really fast with this tech thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they're like, that's not, how, that's not what we meant. We didn't want that. Right. We, we wanted to be liberated, but we thought that someone else would still do the grunt work. Right. So if you take those two opposite political uh, events, you, you put them together... You got exactly what you asked for back in the 80s. It just doesn't look like what you had wanted. Right, right, right. So talk about the upside. Because to me, I feel like, okay, the, the downside is there's going to be trauma and there's going to be places that, that fail, for lack of a better word. Just go, you know, Detroit on us the way it, Detroit is going today. And all the, all the stuff that goes along with that. But there's upside here too, right? I mean, there, there's there's going to be places, and you describe Cincinnati, but you also describe the the big box store that's salvaged by the artists. Is, is that the upside? I mean, is that the? What do we come through this and look back and say, "Wow, you know, that was a difficult time, but we're in a better place now because of this." There's no point in speculating because we don't know. My mom was born in Borum Hill, Brooklyn. Borum Hill in the 30s and 40s when my grandparents were there, was a very vibrant but poor immigrant neighborhood. Sicilians, Jews, Greeks, Irish. And no one could have imagined in 1940 that by 1960 or 70 that Borum Hill would be a desolate, bombed-out wasteland slum. And in 1970, nobody, nobody would have said that Borum Hill would be a million-dollar boutique neighborhood in, 19, in, in 2015. No, right. Nobody could have predicted any of those things. Right. It's unknowable. What you have to do is day by day, you know, people make individual decisions. It, forget about what the city planners are doing or what the economists are predicting. Individual people and families choose what works for them and they, they migrate as they can. And that's what brings the future. Um, then again, I think that sometimes systems... Oh, oh. <laughs> is that our time? No, well, it is. <laughs> Stop, whatever. There we go. All right. Sorry about that. Yeah, so um, but basically, you can't predict the future. What, what, what happens is that individual people make choices, and that collective decision-making moves us in a particular direction. Um, at, at the other end of the, sort of the apocalypse scale is that a system can bend and bend and bend and bend, and then it simply breaks, and then you have a crisis. And the last really big crisis was World War II and the Great Depression. Before right. that, it was the Civil War. You know, when you can't resolve things amicably, you have a crisis. Right. And, and you know, we are right about due for another one of those crises. And they don't last for very long. They last for three, four, five years. Everything gets scraped away. It's the resetting of the Etch-A-Sketch. Yeah, you, yeah. you wipe everything clean. And uh, people are just like, okay, we can't worry about zoning regulations right now. We have a war on. We need, we need that, that strip mall to be an elementary school right now. We'll, we'll figure it out later. Right, right, right. right. So all the, all the, all the hang-ups we have now... They, they melt away just, in crisis. Just go away. Yeah. And that's kind of... I, I, I've been trying to explain that paradigm to people because you, you look back after World War II... Go to, go to someone living in a neighborhood in the early 1940s and tell them a decade from now you're going to move out to that cornfield. And they would have said, you're, you're insane, right? Like, I've been here for generations. My church is here. My job is here. My family's here. My neighbors are here. We, you know, we're one community. There's no way I'm going to move out there. And then a decade later, they moved out there, right? Because it seemed like the right thing to do. It seems to me like we're, uh, 
experiencing the same kind of paradigm shift where all of our federal policies, our state policies, our investments, our banking system, our insurance system, everything is set up to build the current version of America, you know, the 1950s version on steroids. Yet, you know, things are starting to kind of creep in a different direction. Do, do we have to fix all these things or do all these things just fix themselves? I'm a big believer in outright failure. Let things fail. Yeah. Failure fixes itself. It does. <laughs> yeah. And it's magically. It doesn't cost anything. Right. It just happens. Right. You know? and, and when something fails uh, well enough, like, I, I personally, I think that a lot of neighborhoods haven't failed enough yet. Yeah. That they have to fail a whole lot more before people just are willing to try something different. Yeah. If it's just fair to middling, it's, it's not ripe yet. Yeah. Are, are we, is our biggest problem right now that we're using our affluence to avoid failure? We don't have any affluence. What we have is a lot of debt. And it looks like affluence. Uh, Are we using our capacity to, to uh, you know, have that, what we call the illusion of wealth? Are we, you know, using our debt, our capacity to, uh, to, to, to kind of forestall that failure? We're buying time. Buying time. Yeah. yeah. So, again, failure fixes itself. You know, we're, we're going to exhaust all of our resources trying to keep things going. Yeah. And when they finally do feel, uh, fail for real on, on a big enough scale that nobody can pretend anymore, then we'll do something different. And we don't know exactly what it'll be. This is, this is why you're reassuring to me. Cause I, 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 I see this as well. And, and I, I hear everything that you're saying. Um, sometimes I don't, like in my brain, I, I don't process it quite right. But then I'm like, okay, I'm going to chat with Johnny. I'm going to get an email from Johnny. And, and I'm going to feel, I'm going to feel comfortable with the ambiguity of life, right? Because failure is, okay, I just finished a book earlier this year on, um, the Roman Empire. It was uh, called, uh, Christ to Caesar. And it was a Will Durant book, fascinating book. And the one thing that was really interesting is that the Roman Empire failure, we, I, I don't know how you envision that, but I just think of like one day, that everything just like melts away. The Huns show up. Yeah, yeah the Huns no, show up. It was slow motion. It was slow motion. Very slow motion. Yeah. And the other thing is, by the time the Huns showed up, the Romans were actually happy to have them. <laughs> you know, because right. things were so dysfunctional. They're right. like, yeah, someone with some order, uh, help us fix this aqueduct, you know, this, this place bites. <laughs> so you're talking about Rome. Um, I have friends in a village in Spain that was actually founded by the Romans about 2,000 years ago. And it was just at the point where Rome was about to fail. Sure. Uh, they built a giant Roman aqueduct. It's Segovia. It's near okay. Madrid. And, uh, you know, the Romans came in, and normally there's a formula. You build the aqueduct to get water from the mountains right. out to this desert spot. Uh, it was a crossroad, so they needed water for the army, for the horses. And then immediately you build the square, and you build all the, the temples and all the usual Roman stuff. Sure. Uh, well, they built the aqueduct, and then I guess there was a budget cut. Ah. And they, they just didn't finish the rest of this Next the rest of this stuff. And so what you have is a Roman aqueduct, and then you, it's sort of like a giant freeway cloverleaf was carved out in the, in the corn <laughs> somewhere, right? And then, like, no more Department of Transportation funding. But what happened over a 2,000-year period is that waves of other people came along. The, um, there, were, there were the Arabs who came up uh, from, from North Africa, right. and they had a civilization there for 800 years. Sure. And it worked pretty well because, you know, everything else in Europe was, was they were barbar, you know, barbarism. Exactly. And the Arabs actually had civilization and art and order and peace yeah. and security. Yeah. And then, you know, their thing kind of ran its course because right. everything always does. Right. You know, there's a beginning, there's, there's a, a middle, cycle. there's an end. Yep. 800 years later, you know, then you get a new set of, uh, you know, the, the Ferdinand and Isabella kind yep. of, you know, that kind of thing. 
And you can just see layer after layer after layer of empires that rise and fall and rise and fall. And what they leave behind is the physical stuff. Right. right? So right. when they dig up ballast, they're going to find these massive columns reaching up into the sky, yeah. holding up roads. Right. Uh, the glass buildings won't be here. The, right. That's not going to hold up. But, right. But the freeways will always be here. No. Johnny, thanks so much. Thank you. I love, uh, I love chatting with you. Uh, the website's Granola Shotgun. Is it dot com? Dot com. GranolaShotgun.com. Check it out. Johnny uh, appears on our blog, strongtowns.org, quite frequently, too. Thanks so much. And uh, enjoy the rest of your CNU. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.